what I'd like to do this morning is a little different um, for, it is a sermon, um, so let me reassure you there, but uh, instead of having um, three points and a bit of alliteration and so forth for you to follow, I'd really like to have a, a kind of an ongoing conversation with the text. It is a narrative passage that we're looking at. So um, we'll have a, a kind of a conversation with the text. That means um, that uh, if you're looking for the three points, that won't be so easy for you to, to ferret out. But I would like you to have your Bible ready and open because we are going to be moving back and forth from the text a bit. And you'll want to have a look at it if you've got your Bible with you. And um, there will be a few notes as well. Um, if you are in the habit of keeping notes, then you might want to have your pen and paper ready to do that as well. Um, first and foremost, though, before we start, let's pray together, all right? Our Father, our Heavenly Father, we, um, we are grateful that at this point in our worship time together, we can come to your word and we can, we can look into your word, really searching for you. Um, we thank you for the fact that you've given all of this to us for the express reason of helping us to know you, to know you better, to know your will, to know the Lord Jesus, and to understand what it is that we need to understand about who he is. And as we've celebrated communion this morning, even who he is for us. We thank you that we can do this together as a church, and we thank you that we don't do it apart from you or in any way separate from you. We do it entirely alongside of you with your guidance, with your understanding, and with the very gift of your word itself. We pray that you'd bless this time that we have. We pray that you would guide us into understanding and, and shared understanding. The things that we do together here in worship, Father, we pray it would be a blessing to us as a people for the sake of who we are as a people. We thank you that you are very much here with us, and we pray that you would bless this time for us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. So the passage... Uh, that Marie read for us was um, from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, of the Gospel of Matthew, verse 22. I'm going to start back a little further, because this is one of those really good times when the, the chapter breaks actually work fairly accurately for us. In other words, the beginning of chapter 14 through to the end of chapter 14 really do work as a kind of framework, particularly for the story that we're going to be looking at. And at the beginning of chapter 14, the, the incident, the story that's recounted there by Matthew is the death, the execution of John the Baptist, right? Herod is manipulated into calling for John's head on a platter so he can give it to his wife and, um, and goes through that. John is killed. And the, the account um, from Matthew goes like this. At the end of that segment, uh, verse 12, going into verse 13. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So Jesus has been informed about John's death. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him, they followed him on foot from the towns. So Matthew, uh, Matthew's, the, the picture that Matthew is giving us is this is Jesus. Now, grieving the loss of John. John, the great prophet who introduces Jesus to the world. But not just the great prophet, the cousin. This is his relative, close relative. And he's been killed, murdered, really, in a violent way. And Matthew's giving us this insight into Jesus. Jesus is grieving his loss and looking for an opportunity 
to have some time alone with God, to, 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 to mourn, to grieve. And what happens? He finds a quiet place, and of course people immediately start coming there because he's there. And soon enough, he's got this enormous crowd, and he doesn't neglect them. He teaches them. He reaches out to them, and he even feeds them in that great miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. Then at the end of that, after he's done that, following through to uh, uh, verse uh, 21, sorry, verse 22, immediately after he's done this wonderful miracle, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Jesus is still looking for his moment to grieve and to mourn. And throughout this particular larger passage, Jesus searching for that moment when he can be alone and he can grieve his loss is inevitably confronted with the needs of his people. And he puts aside his grief and his own concerns for the sake of his people, caring for his people. And it happens again. He's fed the 5,000. He sent his followers off. They're in a boat. They're, they're rowing across the sea. It's night. In fact, by now it's very late. And they're into the thick of a storm. They're not making any progress. And one thing we need to understand about the sea, particularly from a, a Hebrew standpoint, a Hebrew mindset, the sea is the place of chaos. It's the untamed part of creation. And it's scary. It's always scary, even when there isn't a storm. And in this case, it's particularly scary. It's chaotic. And they're faced with a crisis now, his followers in this boat, stuck out there on the sea. So Jesus comes out to them walking on the water. They're making no progress, rowing desperately in the midst of this chaos, and they see this apparition coming toward them, and they're terrified. Now they're really scared. And he calls out to them, and he says something. It's important to take note of exactly what he says here. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. That's, that's my translation. More technically, what he says in that moment is, take heart, I am, fear not. You get that? Jesus, in that moment of chaos and crisis, standing miraculously, before his close followers, he uses the ancient name that God himself uses to introduce himself, the personal name of God, to Moses at the burning bush. I am. Take heart. I am. Be not afraid. What happens? Of course, Peter, and this is where we, we return to Peter, our friend Peter. Um, Peter... Simon Peter, Peter the reed, Peter the rock, right? We return to our friend Peter, about whom we're, we're preaching this series because we're looking at the life and the character of Peter as an insight into the deeper part of Scripture. Peter, of course, bobs up at this point. Classic story, classic example, isn't it? Peter, impulsive, rash Peter. He looks out, he sees this apparition who has said, take heart, I am, fear not. And he calls out and he says, uh, verse, 29, verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. 
More technically, what he really says is, Lord, if you are I am, command me to come to you. You get it? He's picking up on what Jesus very, very intentionally has just done in the midst of this crisis, chaotic storm. If you are I am, command me to come to you. And effectively what Peter has said is, if you're, Lord, if you're God, prove it. If you're God, prove it. And Peter, in his wonderful, rash, and impulsive way, has turned this moment around from a moment of Jesus proclaiming himself as the Lord of all creation and God's Son to becoming a moment about his faith. And he, he starts off okay. Well, let's, let's be clear. It's a very presumptuous statement. And if you only, if you need to know how presumptuous, look back into Matthew 4, chapter 4. Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the temple, and he stands them there at the top of the temple, and he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself off. Effectively, if you're God, prove it. Virtually the same thing that Peter has just said here. If you're God, prove it. And of course, Jesus dismisses Satan in that instance by saying, you shall not test the Lord your God. Jesus is a little more gracious in his response to Simon. He says, all right, come. Now, at this point, Peter gets off to a good start, doesn't he? He leaps out of the boat, wonderful, impulsive Peter, always two steps ahead of himself, gets out, gets off to a good start, and then he realizes what he's doing, what, where he is and what's going on, and he crashes into the sea, falls into the sea, and panics. And at this point, we can step back from the text. We should step back from the text because we read this passage and often what we're, what we're saying at this point is if Peter had better faith or greater faith or if we have greater faith or better faith, we can walk on the water. And, and, and that, I don't dispute that. That's not untrue. But I don't think that's the big point that Matthew is making here and it's not the important thing to notice about Peter. Because it's very easy for us to look at Peter from our standpoint and our knowledge of the story and even the bigger story and say, yeah, this is Peter doing the kind of thing that Peter does and maybe dismiss it. But the, the thing that we need to notice and I think the thing that Matthew wants us to see is when you consider who he's writing to, Peter is us. Peter does what we do when faced with a crisis so often. When faced with a crisis so often, we take our focus off of the one who is with us and we look at the problem. I think this is especially true for people who are in ministry. And in some ways, you'd argue we should know better. But it's human. It's what we do. We look away from the one who is with us. We shift our focus, especially if it's a crisis, especially if it's a big crisis or a challenge. And we look at the problem. And the very next thing that we do, which is what Peter has done here, we look at our faith. We look at the spiritual resources we have to bring to bear on the situation. And we start to line them up. And we begin to realize, oh, there's a gap here. This isn't enough. 
This is a really big challenge, threat, crisis. And what I have to bring spiritually into this situation, I don't think it's enough. And we crash into the sea at that point, just like Peter. That's true for us as individuals. It could be true for us as a church as well to look at the challenge that we face and to look at our resources and say, if we're not focused on the one who is with us, we will see the problem emerge as the dominant thing to notice. And we don't have enough, spiritually or otherwise, to face that challenge. But there's another problem with this, and maybe a more insidious problem, and it's exactly what we do also as humans, as people, in the midst of, uh, of a challenge or a crisis or a threat, where what we need to be looking at is the one who is with us, the one who is standing over the chaos of those seas in divine authority to, to shift our focus from where it should be to the problem. And I'm going to tell you a story to illustrate the more problematic nature of this issue for us. When Terry and I went, returned to Ethiopia as a married couple, after we'd been married here back in, in 90, 1990, returned to Ethiopia as a married couple, one of the first new missionaries in Ethiopia we met was a young guy, he was a young Texan, as a matter of fact, named Braden. <clears throat> and Braden, um, he was from the US, he was from Texas, he uh, might have been from Texas, but he wasn't like the Texan that you imagine when you think of Texans. He wasn't tall, he was actually fairly short. He wasn't brash and outgoing, he was very quiet, kind of withdrawn, even a bit timid, you would say, very shy. Lovely young guy, but hard to get to know. And in those first, first few weeks back into Ethiopia, we're getting ourselves organized, we were preparing to go to our station down country. He was waiting to hear where he was going to be assigned. Braden had given two years of service to the mission. He was a forester, a forestry expert. And he volunteered. He wanted to serve in a missionary role for a couple of years. And he was waiting to hear <clears throat> what part of Ethiopia he was going to serve in. We were all waiting to hear what part of Ethiopia he was going to serve in. <clears throat> and as we waited, after a few weeks, the mission leadership discussed the issue they announced their decision, they informed uh, Braden of the decision, and they, they told him, uh, Braden, you'll serve your, your two years with us. I am down in Kamba, southwest Ethiopia. That doesn't mean anything to you here now. <clears throat> to us, to us, Kamba was the last place in Ethiopia that any missionary would willingly go to. <clears throat> and that's for people, missionaries, who are willing to go to Ethiopia in the first place, right? So Combo was way down the list of places that you would ever want to go to, particularly in ministry. And the reason for that was Combo was a place where the church had been planted. It had been planted a couple generations before and got off to a good start. The word spread, people came to faith, many local churches among that people group in that region, in that district, started to grow. Things were going well. And then, for some reason, the leaders of those churches, they really started to look after themselves, first and foremost. And it entered into a period where those churches then really started to suffer from very corrupt and even kind of carnal leadership and a lot of conflict. 
conflict between members of churches, conflict between churches themselves, to the point that the communist governor of that region wrote a letter to the leaders of the national church, of which this church was a part. <clears throat> he wrote a letter to the leaders of the national church, and he said, you, you guys need to do something here. This is really embarrassing. We have more trouble dealing with the Christians here than anybody else. And that's, that's embarrassing. I don't think it should be like that. And it, 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 it's the Christians who are hauling each other into courts and making accusations against each other. <clears throat> it's the Christians who are fighting over land. It's the Christians who are at conflict with one another. Address this. Do something about it. Well, the national leadership of the church and even the leadership of the mission had been aware of and had been trying to, to, to fix this problem, to heal the wounds of these people for a long time. And we got nowhere. We're getting nowhere. Uh, the, the opportunities that we'd had had been rejected. Things hadn't changed. If anything, regionally, they, they'd gotten even worse. And this now was the context, the setting into which Braden, quiet, arguably timid, young Braden was going as a missionary for two years. I thought, and I wasn't the only one who thought this, but I have to fess up for myself. I thought, this is a mistake. This is a bad decision. He won't last two months there. Or if he does, it'll pull him apart. It'll be, uh, you know, it'll be really, it'll be a terrible experience for him. Why are we doing this? And I, I know from those quiet little disgruntled discussions that you have with your colleagues that there were others who felt like this was a bad decision. But we're good missionaries. We didn't challenge our leadership, um, which you didn't do in those days. And Braden went off to Kamba. We went off to our station, which was a little further over south. And so we, we didn't see a lot of Braden then over the next couple of years. Every once in a while, we'd be at a regional center together or something like that. We'd catch up a bit. I couldn't see there was anything particularly wrong, but um, we didn't hear a lot about Braden or Kamba or anything else for that period of time. Braden served for two years in Kamba. He finished his two years. Uh, he, he left Kamba. He packed up, left Ethiopia, returned to the U.S. And I thought, well, good on him. He survived two years in Kamba thinking, you know, that was, that was an accomplishment in itself. He survived two years, and that was it. And that would have been, probably should have been it, except it really isn't the end of the story. A few months later, the leaders of the national church and the leaders of our mission got a letter from the joint leaders of Kamba. And that should tell you something right there. There were no joint leaders of the Kamba church before that. They couldn't sit down together cooperatively enough to write a letter. You need two of them together to write a letter. But this was from the joint, the, all of the leaders of the Kamba churches to the national leadership. It said this, we're aware for years of the conflict, the division, and the problems that we have created as a church and as a people of God in this place. Not only for us, for our brothers and sisters. And we repent of those things. We're deeply sorry for them. And we want you to send representatives to us for us to be able to hold a repentance and reconciliation ceremony over a full week from the church, from the mission. Send us your leaders. Well, 
That got quite a buzz going. That was quite remarkable. Everyone was really interested in that. Wow, what happened? What's going on? Is this genuine? The church appointed a few of its senior leaders. The mission sent a few of its senior leaders. They went together. They spent a week in Kamba. And when they returned, the missionary, one of the missionary leaders that we sent, he recounted this to us in a prayer day that we had together shortly after he came back. This was his account. He said, and he was a senior missionary. He'd been in Ethiopia for many, many years. He said, I, I have never seen anything like this. I have never seen a more incredible work of God's Spirit than what we experienced in Kamba. We were there a whole week, and every day, day and night, people were coming on foot from distant parts of that district, sometimes walking for days, fasting, not eating anything, coming into the central church in Kamba, praying, uh, wailing as if they were coming to a funeral, beating their chests like Ethiopians will do when they're mourning or grieving, and falling on their knees in the church and crying out to God for forgiveness. A whole week of just this. Day and night, people after people after people, church after church, coming into this until the, the town was kind of swelling with this crowd of believers. He said it was incredible. And at the end of that, one of the leaders who'd been appointed, he got up and he said, please forgive us. What can we say? Please forgive us. We repent and we're deeply sorry. And the leaders who were there on behalf of the church and the mission, of course, they offered their forgiveness. And then immediately, the whole thing turned into a celebration. And for the next two days, they feasted together. They, they, they sang and worshiped together. And I mean, when Ethiopians really get into it, look out. Don't, don't think about sleeping. Because this is 24-hour worship and, and feasting. And they, that's what they did. They celebrated for two whole days. All of that sorrow, all of that anguish, it came out as joy. And the missionary who was telling this, honestly, and he was a pretty tough guy, he was, he was choking back a few tears, got that far in, in the story, and, and he nearly finished. He, you know, we were all amazed at this point, thinking, wow. And somebody said, fortunately, somebody thought to say, what happened? How did this, how did this come about? And he said, oh, yes, he said, that's the best part. Because he knew, he knew Brayden. This is what happened. He said, I wanted to know how all of this came about, so I got some of these church leaders together quietly when we were having the feasts and whatnot. I said, what, what prompted this? Where did this come from? What got you guys you know, to repent like this and brought you all together? And, he, and they said, they all said the same thing. They said, well, it's like this. We were, you know, we were at each other's throats. You know that, honestly. But a, a couple of years ago, the mission sent this young guy to us. His name was Braden. And Braden used to sit with us, each of us, whenever he got together with us, and he'd sit and he'd read the scripture with us. Just that. And, it, and at first, you know, we didn't think so much about it, but that went on. And as it went on further and further, we really started to, to take notice of who this God is and who Jesus is. And after about a year or so, we were looking at ourselves in the light of that, and we thought, oh, what have we done? And by the time he left, our hearts were broken, all of us. We were deeply sorry and deeply shamed. And so we called you here to accept our repentance and to forgive us. You see what happened? 
He was telling us, and he knew, he knew what, what we had all thought about Braden when he was sent off to combat by himself. But this is the point. When we're faced with a crisis or a challenge, particularly a really big one, and we shift our focus from the one who is with us to the problem, and we then start to weigh up our resources, our, what we have to bring to that situation, that challenge, spiritually and otherwise, of course, we see the paucity of that. We see the inadequacy, the insufficiency of that, of ourselves. But this is the worst part, because it's not only us in our insufficiency we see, but the people who are with us and how inadequate and insufficient they are to meet that challenge, ultimately. And the meager spiritual resources that they bring to that. When we shift our focus from the one who is with us to the challenge. And that's what we did with Braden. We looked at Braden. We sized him up against the backdrop of that huge challenge, and we thought, no, it doesn't line up. And we were wrong. And what we had done was exactly what Peter did here in this story. We shifted our focus from the God of all creation who was with us to the problem doesn't work. What happens is, as individuals, maybe as a community, we end up in the sea, floundering. Now, we can come back to the text at this point, because that's not the end of the story. The most important part of this story, the biggest miracle here, is not Jesus walking on the waves in this wild sea to his followers. And it's not stilling the storm as he gets into the boat with Peter. This is Matthew's account, the final part of that. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. This is Peter and Jesus together. And those in the boat worshiped saying, truly, truly, you are the Son of God. The most wonderful miracle in all of this is not that Jesus, the Lord of all creation, bringing order to chaos. It's the Son of God stepping from His place of sovereign authority over all things, over all creation, over chaos itself, and getting into the boat with us. Even though our good friend Peter, like the rest of us, was paying more attention to the storm than we were to the Son of God. But put yourself in that boat with those followers and hear what they said and what Matthew says about them. They worshipped him. They were overwhelmed. God has just stepped into our boat. They did the only thing they could do. They fell down. It's a very strong word that's used there for worship. They fell down and worshiped him as God. And that's what God calls us to do. When we're faced with a challenge, with a crisis, with whatever, before we shift our focus from the one who is with us, the one who promises to be with us always, to the very end, before we take that step, before we make that mistake, we're called to worship Him. 
He's not out there somewhere far away or heaven or wherever you think of. He's with us in the boat. The God of the universe is here with us. Now, Peter, we, of course, in this series, we're looking at the life and the character of Peter. It's an instructive thing, particularly because of the way that Peter grows and changes. And the thing to notice here is the Peter of the Simon, really, Simon the Reed of this story. Compare that Peter with the Peter of the book of Acts, standing on the day of Pentecost before this enormous crowd, potentially hostile, openly, clearly, confidently preaching the gospel and pointedly preaching the gospel to these people without fear. Or, even more dramatically, the same Peter standing before a clearly hostile audience in the Sanhedrin, calling into account, judging them, and preaching the gospel to them. Again, confidently, clearly, aware of the message he has to bring and the one who is with him to bring it. That's the difference. So the story ultimately isn't about Peter, is it? It's about Jesus and who he is. But most wonderfully of all, that who he is gets into the boat with us. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's even possible, as you know, and as we confess, for us to come here to worship with so many other thoughts or distractions or concerns or fears, um, other things on our mind that take the place that you rightly deserve in our hearts and in our thoughts, especially here. And despite that, you're patient, you're gracious, as Jesus was with Peter. You lift us up, you dust us off, you take us by the hand, and then you get into the boat with us, and you continue to walk with us. And we know, Father, that you're walking with us as a church in the face of the big challenges and the big questions, the big problems that we face, that we'll always face as your people in this community. You're with us. And we thank you for the fact that as much as your divine, almighty, sovereign, and absolutely authoritative over all things, you're also personal. And you have put aside everything else for the sake of your people. We thank you that you're here with us. We pray that our worship would reflect a real awareness of that gift and the awesome splendor and wonder of what it means for you the God of the universe, to be here with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.